Hello, and welcome to Saga Shorts, where we look at the shorter stories of medieval Iceland. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And if all has gone well, this is our second week in the uh, <laughs> month of Thatir Project that we've foolishly oh, undertaken. It seemed like such a good idea before we started. It was a good idea. The problem, though, is that we're the ones who actually have to do it, John, and that's what I was thinking about. So it was a good idea for someone else to do it? Well, I mean, that's generally how good ideas work. They're, they're all shiny and exciting, and then you you got to actually do them. And I've had a well, lot of good ideas in the I days. Mean, let's face it, Andy. There are a couple of things we can offer as we and much of the world hunker down and self-isolate against the coronavirus spread. Uh, and there's only a couple of things we can offer. <laughs> uh, I mean, we're already teaching remotely and running households full of kids. Yes, and churning out episodes of a nonsense podcast we produce... Well, that's really the obvious next step, isn't it? Okay. Uh, with that enthusiastic introduction out of the way, are we uh, are we pretty much ready to kick things off? Or is there Can you some tell other? I'm tired? I'm tired, John. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm a little tired too. So do you want to get started or is there any other time-wasting nonsense we need to do first? Well, there's always time-wasting nonsense to do first. Uh, we are vampers, John, and what we do is we vamp. Uh-huh. Uh, well... Uh, we should probably at least mention. <laughs> I didn't know what the next line was going to be, but we should we should at least probably mention the name of the short story that we're going to be talking about today. Well, that? I mean that's that's fair. Uh, this week we're reading the tale of Thorarin Nefjolson. Good old Thorarin Nefjolson, the very same. And who is that exactly? Well, that's what the story is going to tell us. <laughs> I hope uh, we so. Can, we can tip our hand a bit and say that Thorarin is an Icelander who spends some time in the company of King Knut the Great and then ends up in the court of King Olaf and is accused of spying for one king against another. Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah. So this is why you don't go around trying to get the friendship of these Norwegian kings, because it just brings trouble. I mean, that's that's basically the medieval Icelandic national anthem. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's at least the saga anthem. The historical reality is a bit more complicated than that. <laughs> and that's the saga thing anthem. <laughs> the historical reality is a bit more complicated. Oh, did you? Why? <laughs> what? Was that an off-key attempt at Avril Lavigne as our anthem? Uh, no, I prefer to think that Avril Lavigne's been doing an on-key impression of me for years. <laughs> oh, you just keep thinking that, Butch. Uh, I will. And there's more. In this very short, short story, we get court intrigue, a lesson in the economics of friendship, a trial by ordeal, conversions, a miracle story, and a secret arm ring. It sounds a lot more full than the previous Thatcher we did. I mean. <laughs> wow. Well, you put Look, it like that. You, in- you picked your favorite. I picked mine. What can I say? I didn't say it was a favorite. I just said I wanted to do it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think we really need to emphasize just how really brief this Thatcher is. Um John, how many decikels are we talking about here? Right. So the decikel, as always, is our unit of measure for a thouter based on how many tenths of a Hravenkel saga a given thouter measures out to. We and by that very, very scientific measure, <laughs> Thorarin's thouter clocks in at a lightweight 1.59 decikels. It's, it's pretty wee. Pretty wee, but a wee bit longer than Thorstein Shiver was. Yeah, a bit. Can we call it the not as wee as a wee thouter thouter? If it makes you happy, I say go for it. <laughs> it kind of does. Uh, all right. Are we ready to get this started? I mean, I've been ready for a while, but no, we'll just start when you're ready. You let me know. Well, thank you. Okay. Part one. Torn between two rulers. All right. So this is the story of Thorarin Nefilson. 
Yeah, yeah, the title out front should have told you that. Uh, I, yeah, except it's not really Thorarin's story. At least it's not just Thorarin's story. It's the story of Thorarin and his best buddy, Thorsten Ranilderson. Ah, yes. It's one of those stories. See, sometimes we see this in the sagas too. Mm-hmm. Sagas like Thorstein the White or Henthor saga are named for a figure who provides an inciting event rather than the one who's actually the focus of the story. Right. Yeah. So Eric the Red Saga is another one of those, actually. Uh, yeah. But this is a Thouter, right? A short story. There really isn't much time for digressions into secondary characters. Instead, what we have is a story with two chapters. And two each whole man, chapters. Two of them. And each man gets to be the focus for one chapter. Well, at least it's balanced. Uh-huh. And since Thorin is the focus of the first chapter, he gets the naming rights. More or less, yeah. Uh, yeah. Although Thorsten's a more interesting person in some ways, which we'll get into later. Yeah. For now, what we need to know is that Thorsten has more money than Thorarin. And he's also got a strange personal quirk, which is that he wears a single glove all the time. Okay. Um, so do we have any baseball jokes, Michael Jackson references, anything else we need to get off our chests? Um, maybe a tour joke? No, this guy's got two hands. He just wears a glove on one of them. Well, Uh, Tour only wears a glove on one hand. Right, but he's only got one hand. (laughs) Okay, so Thororin and his friend Thorsten meet while they're both in the court of King Knut the Great for a winter. They Mm -hmm. become close friends to the extent that they make a formal bond of brotherhood and swear that whenever they're in the same country, they'll always live together. That's sweet. Yeah, and so a year or two later, when Thorsten returns from a voyage and comes to Eyjafjord, his intention is to look up his old friend Thororin, who's also returned to Iceland. Okay, see... I realize that you're trying to move things along, and I salute you for that. But really, are we not going to talk about King Canute the Great at all? Well, I mean, the story doesn't. He, he's not Canute's in this powder. His court is just the place where Thorarin and Thorsten meet. I know, but Canute doesn't show up much in the sagas, and how are we going to let this opportunity get away? Mm-hmm. We have to at least explain who he is for people who aren't familiar with him. All right, carry on. Oh, me? I didn't really intend for me to do it. I like when you do these things. <laughs> <laughs> but Knut is the son of Svein Forkbeard, who is an expansionist king of Norway and who briefly conquered England in the early 11th century. Very cool. Yeah, super briefly. Like about 40 yeah. days worth of briefly. Well, you know uh, how it goes. Yeah, now Sven was acknowledged as king of England on, what, December 25th, 1013? And he, did, he died in the first week of February of 1014. It takes me Two longer to dates. use up a jar of pickles than Sven spent on the throne. It takes you 40 days to eat a jar of pickles? I mean, I'm not the world's <laughs> biggest pickle fan. Can't get decent half dills up here. <laughs> anyway, Svein did it. And you should probably eat more pickles, in my opinion. <laughs> Send but me some son, half dills or half sours and I will. Okay. But his son, Knut, later reclaimed England in 1016 and ruled over it as part of his North Sea Empire. Mm. The, the North Sea Empire also included Norway, Denmark, and some bits of Sweden. Right. Very cool dude. Knut was pretty impressive. He was. Great even. And yes. go listen to a uh, Rex Factor episode on Knut if you want to know more. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot more we could say about Knut, but they've covered him pretty well. And we're supposed to be mm-hmm. keeping these episodes bite-sized, Andy. Bite-sized. Okay, but what about the... No, no, no. Bite-sized. Knut mm. was impressive, but he's not in this actual story. This story is about Thorarin and Thorsten. All right. Fine. Spoil sport. You delay my episode with nickname nonsense, but, uh, you know, that's fine. <laughs> uh, for now, back to Thor- uh, Thorsten Renilderson, who's just returned to Iceland. 
Uh, Thorsten is a successful man who makes friends easily. And so even though he intends to stay with Thorarin, he has other offers. Specifically, Guthman the Powerful and his brother Einar oh. both, both invite Thorsten to stay at their places for the winter. Well, we've seen Guthman before a few times. Mm-hmm. He was a big player in Njal Saga and in Bandamana Saga. John? Bandamana Saga. Thank you. And he's going to be turning up again in some of the sagas we have coming up. Guthman yeah. the Powerful. Guthman is generally presented as a self-important man. I mean, definitely, definitely. an actually important man as well. Yeah. But he's very impressed with himself. Uh, and when Thorsten explains that he's planning to stay with Thorarin because they have this arrangement, Guthman gets snarky about it. Yeah, he says going to Thorarin's for hospitality would be like going to a goat shed for wool. Ooh, <laughs> rural yes. farming burn. See, because the wool comes from sheep. Right, not yeah, no, goats. I get it, I get it. He's, yeah. he's not called Goodman the Icelandic insult comic. Uh, he's not great at this. Uh, anyway, uh, Thorsten ignores him and does stay at Thorarin's farm for the winter. And all 17 of his crew stay there as well. And Thorarin is happy to see him, and over the winter he entertains his friend in high style. But Thorarin really is not wealthy, and he has to slaughter all his farm animals to feed so many guests. And he uses up his supply of drink as well. But come spring, Thorsten questions the farm's foreman and learns how much Thorarin spent on hosting him. Thorsten repays his friend by buying new livestock for the farm and by giving Thorarin's wife a costly tapestry. And that's not all. He also gives Thorarin a half interest in his ship and asks him to come sailing with him. Yeah, which is lovely. I mean, it's not much of a voyage, though. They just they just sail directly to Norway and meet up with King Olaf Haraldsson. Uh, this is uh, King Olaf II, also known as Saint Olaf. Mm-hmm. Also known as Olaf the Stout by people who didn't like him very much. That's true, but hurtful. Uh, Olaf invites Thorarin and Thorsten to stay with him, and so they're able to spend some time. Wait, wait, hang on, hang on. Olaf what? invites Thorarin to stay with him. Oh, yes. Thorarin then asks whether Thorstein can stay too, right? Okay, yeah. No, that's important. Uh, because Olaf has heard about how Thorstein has been in the court of King Knut. Mm-hmm. And he's less sure about having him stay there. Just a little uh, royal jealousy there. Well, I mean, just a little plot point, really. Right. Well, it's an important one. And what we're learning here is that Olaf is nervous about spies or turncoats in his court. And specifically, he's worried about Knut's followers infiltrating his hall. Right. And consider that a firm hint about where the story is heading. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So for now, Olaf gives Thorarin and Thorsten a privileged place in his court. And that means other men have to back off down the benches to make room for them. And the two men whose seats they take are not gracious about losing their spots. Well, they just got comfortable. Why would they? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just got the seats all warmed up. Yeah. And these two guys are named Helgi and Thorir. Yeah. And they bite their tongues for the present, but... They definitely stew over this for a while and start planning their revenge. Right. And meanwhile, there's another new arrival at court, a man named Bjarni, uh, who was shipwrecked in the north of Norway and has now made his way on foot to Olaf's court. To Olaf's court. Right. And Bjarni immediately introduces himself to Thorarin and explains that he's Thorarin's nephew. Yeah, but that's a little weird because Thorarin doesn't know anything about this guy. Yeah. Just to be clear, though, that doesn't mean that Bjarni's not his nephew. It just means that mm-hmm. Thorarin's not that close with his extended family, and he's not really sure he wants to vouch for Bjarni's behavior. Right, but Bjarni's really insistent about it, and even says that Thorarin should arrange lodging for him at the king's court. Mm-hmm. And Thorarin says, I know nothing about you, whether we're kinsmen or not. Uh, but he finally agrees, 
He convinces King Olaf to let Bjarni stay, but there's a catch. All right, Thorarin. Bjarni can stay with us. But you must guarantee that he will not be stubborn, and you must decide whether he stays with the king's men or not. So is that what King Olaf sounds like? <laughs> I think so. I went into it without really putting a lot of thought <laughs> into how that voice would sound. Well, I, I'm not really worry. sure. And could I reproduce yeah. it? I don't know. Yeah, no, don't worry. You'll figure it out by the time we actually start recording. Uh, <laughs> so Thorarin is exactly where he didn't want to be, right? He's the one who will have to answer for it if this brash young warrior starts any trouble. Yeah, he's already vouched for Thorstein to join the king's men. And his credibility is getting stretched a little thin here. Yeah, well, and Thorarin knows it, so he pulls Bjarni aside. Your obstinacy will make your stay here with the king's men difficult. Be sure you don't go stirring up any rumors among the company. Yeah, so Bjarni's been told not to cause any trouble. Exactly. And he's determined to follow Thorarin's advice. So, in a unique situation for one of these stories, he keeps his mouth shut. And that's that, a simple tale told quickly. A little short on blood and guts, but a good yarn all the same. No, stop it, stop it. We retired that joke a long time ago. It's a callback, John. A good comedian <laughs> right. always callback. Sure, fair enough. Uh, no, we've just finished setting up our cast. So we've got Thorarin, his nephew Bjarni, uh, his friend Thorsten, and then the jealous Carls Helgi and Thorir. Mm-hmm. All five of them are now in the company of King Olaf. Yes, and no one else knows that Helgi and Thorir are still looking for revenge against Thorarin's group for their perceived loss of honor. Exactly. So that winter, one evening, Bjarni takes a nap. And when he wakes, everyone else has gone to Evensong. Right. Uh, there's actually quite a lot of Christianity in the Stouter, which is going to make sense when we get to the second half of the story. So as Bjarni hurries to catch up with the others, he passes a building where he can hear Helgi talking to a group of the king's men. Andy, do you want to you want to redeem yourself from your Olaf voice and be Helgi? Sure, sure. I mean, I'm usually pretty committed to my method, so I like to have some notice before I have to create a character. But whatever, yeah. that's fine. <laughs> yeah, your your method. You're the mm-hmm. love child of Dustin Hoffman and Daniel Day Lewis. Nah, now now I kind of want Helgi to sound like Dustin Hoffman. Whatever floats your boat. I I have. <laughs> <laughs> I love setting you up for this kind of thing. <laughs> I have bad news for you. <laughs> no, it's not going to sound good on the mic. In person, it sounds great, but yeah, that's on the, the mic, problem. It, it distorts my voice. Yeah, it's a poor yeah. craftsman blames his tools, Andy. <laughs> All right, so he says, "I have some bad news for you. Our King Olaf is being betrayed, and King Knut has set up a conspiracy against him. This is why he sent Thorstein to Iceland to give gifts to Thorarin, so that he would trick the young king and allow Bjarni to attack him." For this purpose, Thorarin accepted a gold arm ring from Knut, which he wears secretly on his left arm. But on his right arm, out on show for all to see, is the one that Olaf gave him. Oof. That's that's quite a conspiracy theory. It is. It is. So the idea here is that Olaf's enemy, King Knut, sent Thorstein to recruit Thorarin, who then brought Bjarni into Olaf's court so that Bjarni could assassinate Olaf. Right. It's and like so- a soap opera. Right, and so the proof that Helgi offers is that Thorarin wears a secret arm ring from Canute on his left arm. And that's where Helgi's lie gets interesting. You see, any good lie needs just enough truth to be plausible. Mm-hmm. And Thorarin does have an arm ring from Canute that he keeps hidden on his left arm. Yeah, I mean, he keeps it hidden because he's not an idiot. 
and he recognizes that Olaf wouldn't appreciate seeing evidence of Thorarin's friendship with Knut. Can I but ask that's though, all does, it is. Does the, does, the, does the ring have a Knut with a heart on it? Like, how, well, how does one know? I mean, where it uh, came on from? the inside, perhaps, but not where anyone can see. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's just a ring that he got when he was in the court. He's not plotting against Olaf. He's just yeah. friends with both men. Yeah. But that's a subtlety that Helgi and Thorir can exploit, right? Mm-hmm. So the next day, having now raised suspicion in the minds of the men, they'll tell King Olaf about it. And the king then goes out to where Thorarin is washing his hands because everyone should wash their hands a lot more than they do, I think. We've learned that. <laughs> Be like Thorarin, kids. Wash right, your hands. Right. All right. So Thorarin is singing the happy birthday song while he washes up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Olaf grabs his arm and finds the gold ring under his sleeve. Because he does actually have that. Yeah. Uh, he confronts Thorarin, who admits that the ring came from Canute, and explains, I wear it hidden and on my left arm because the friend who gave it is far away. The gold ring on my right arm was given to me by the most outstanding king, the one we serve now. So, i.e. Olaf. Well, I mean, that sounds great. But if I'm Olaf, I'm thinking, that's what a traitor would say. Well, <laughs> I think you've got a pretty good handle on how a slightly paranoid king thinks because that's how a human ex- being thinks. Right. That's exactly Olaf's reaction. He has all three of the accused, Thorsten, Thorarin, and Bjarni. He has them all seized and locked up. And that is not popular with the rest of his men. No, no. They all smell a rat. Um, and then a, a bishop is sent to hear the confessions and he announces that he believes in their innocence. But Olaf's still convinced that they're spies. Because again, he's slightly paranoid. Yeah, but the the bishop's got a plan to convince him. It's a trial. But not just any old trial. Oh no, this is going to be a trial by ordeal. Ah, this is going to be fun. Part two, a burn in the hand. I would have done that more winky, winky, like a burn in the hand. But, you know, you do it your way. I trust people to get the jokes. I don't have to I don't have to <laughs> waggle my eyebrows at them and wiggle my cigar up and down. I can just trust that our audience is smart <laughs> enough to get what I'm throwing. Well, you know, I was trained in the vaudeville circuit. <laughs> All right. A trial by ordeal. So let's help everybody out here. How does this work? We figure out whether Thorarin weighs the same as a duck. Is that no, how we're going to no, do that's, this? That's, that's witches. Oh, yes, yes. So uh, explain this one, then. What are we doing? Weighing it against a a porcupine, perhaps. (laughs) Okay, so um, the traditional trial by ordeal, which is what we're doing here, is pretty straightforward. Uh, An adjudicator, who is usually a member of the clergy, places a hot bar of iron into a cauldron of boiling water. The defendant Wouldn't it get hot when it it, it gets into the boiling water? No, we we want it cherry red. We want it, like, glowing hot. Like, out of the forge hot. Uh, The defendant then approaches the clergyman who prays over the cauldron. The defendant then reaches into the cauldron and takes out the hot iron. Then his hand is wrapped in bandages and kept covered for three days. And if his hand is revealed to be burned, he's guilty, right? Uh, Sort of. Because that deck seemed a little stacked. Yeah, no, no. Your hand's getting burned either way. Uh, But after three days, the hand is inspected by that clergyman who decides whether it's healing cleanly or not. If there's any sign of corruption in the wound, you're guilty. And if you're just horribly maimed, then congratulations. No, no, no. I mean, well, well, <laughs> no, no. Uh, if your hand is healing well, you're innocent. 
Uh, and the amazing thing is that there's an argument to be made that all of this can kind of work. Fine, then. Uh, let me get a cauldron of boiling water going, and uh, we're going to see how confident you are yeah, about that. Under the right Don't circumstances, that might Wendy, not be... Fi- Wendy, fire up the uh, the cauldron. Yeah. No, that, I, that might not be such a bad idea uh, if I had time to prepare. But first, I have to explain to you how we prepare it. Uh, let's explain what actually happens in the trial in the Thouter. Okay. So, Bjarni is chosen as the one who's going to undergo the trial, presumably because he's supposed to be the assassin. Mm-hmm. The bishop himself is going to run the trial, and we're told, Bjarni handled the iron with courage and like a man. Now, that's always striking. That that's always strikes me, because yeah. if I re- put my hand into a cauldron of boiling water, <laughs> I'm not handling that like a man. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, know, how could you? you? Know, by, by biological definition, you are handling it like a man, but a man who would <laughs> jump up and down and shriek a lot. Yes, yes. <laughs> now, when the results of the ordeal are shown, well... Bjarni's hand has a blister. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, indeed. The king claims this blister, uh, which often comes with burns, by the way, sure. uh, but he claims it as a sign of guilt. But the bishop refuses to judge the case on that basis alone. See, Thorarin and Thorstein are invited to look at Bjarni's hand, and Thorstein's judgment is, there's another hand like that. Thorstein then launches into a story about another trial by ordeal. Okay, wait, let's stop there. Uh, So let's briefly review how this worked. Mm -hmm. So a priest, in this case the bishop, prepares the cauldron, right? fills it with water, lights the fire, presumably either heats the iron bar himself or oversees that process as well, yes? Well, I mean, you're the one telling it, so yes. Okay, fine. So then the defendant, Bjarni, approaches the bishop. It's not made clear in this text, but it's clear elsewhere that no one else should be nearby. It's just the two of them. The bishop will pray over the cauldron, and then Bjarni sticks his hand in and grabs the iron bar. Now, some versions of the trial specify that the defendant has to carry the bar so many paces or so many feet before dropping it. Others will specify holding it for an amount of time, such as the saying of a prayer, before you can let it go. Yes, and then the hand gets bandaged immediately after that for three days. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I can already see some flaws here. Well, yeah, although I'm not sure we should call them flaws. For starters... No one but the bishop knows how hot that water is. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one but the bishop really knows how hot the iron is because, of course, it's getting doused in the water. That's right. And then there's no real instruction about how long that prayer is supposed to go on after the iron is dropped in the water. And then three days later, it's the priest's job to examine the unbandaged hand to decide whether the hand is healing well from the burn. Hmm. So... The priest or the bishop can mm-hmm. more or less decide whether the defendant will be found guilty or innocent all kind by himself. Kind of. Yeah, it's a bit more complicated than that, but yes. So first but they're of all, men of God, John. They wouldn't lie. Right, yeah. No, the priest potentially has a lot of control over the circumstances of the trial. If he thinks an innocent man is on trial, that water might only be warm, or the prayer could go on for several minutes after the iron's been quenched. I'm not saying it's going to be cool to the touch, there's a big difference if the iron's been in warm water for three or four minutes. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if he's pretty sure this guy's guilty, there's a hot pot, a cherry red hunk of metal, and a quick, God bless you, son, good luck, and it's time to grab the iron. <laughs> and there again, when the hand gets wrapped up, the priest sees what, if any, damage was done to the defendant's flesh. And three days later, he's the one who decides whether the healing is clean and shows that the defendant is innocent. All of that, yeah. 
So what's more complicated? Well, okay. I mean, a fair question to ask at this point is why the trial by ordeal was ever a thing. Well, that is always a fair question. Right. Let's, uh, for our purposes, let's put aside the question of whether people believed that God's intervention was the determining factor in these ordeals. Because these are people. Probably some did believe it, some didn't, and most I were skeptical, so. but recognized some value in a test like this. So if we put that aside, we're left with a question that most people wouldn't bother to ask. Did it actually work? Well, I mean, do you mean, did the hands of innocent people miraculously heal cleanly? No, I mean, did the test result in mostly guilty people being found guilty and mostly innocent people being found innocent? So you're asking this question now. Uh-huh. You know, this is supposed to be a short episode, right? I mean, we're both <laughs> dealing with a lot of work right now and it's getting late and we're suddenly supposed <laughs> no, to solve the... No, I don't have to ask this because the economist Peter T. Leeson already did it for me. Okay. Uh, he's written about this a couple of times, uh, most importantly in an essay called The Economics of Ordeal. And he makes the case that this process was essentially a workaround to a social problem and that it is based on what he calls an eminently rational approach to the question of belief and proof. All right. And so how far down this rabbit hole did you go, John? Oh, I went pretty far down, Andy. <laughs> but it, <laughs> it's warm down here in the hole. It's so warm. All right. Uh, I, I'm game. Let's can, can we limit this to, I don't know, can you do five minutes on it? Let's find out. Uh, so, and can we remember what happened in the story? Right. Well, point? remember, put, put a bookmark in it, right? We've, uh, we've got Thorson telling a story about a previous trial by ordeal that he witnessed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this breaks down into a series of variables. We have to start with the basic problem of de- determining a person's guilt. Let's work with two men. We'll call them Bernie and Mr. Guilty Pants on Fire. Mr. Okay. Guilty. I yeah. wanted, yeah, I wanted to avoid confusion. So let's say we ask both Bjarni and Mr. Guilty if they're planning to betray the king. And they both say no. Well, I'm still looking hard at the one called Mr. Guilty. No, 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 not, not, how, this, in my not how this works. Uh, so both men claim to be innocent, right? Torturing them probably won't work because you'd probably get both of them to admit to being guilty whether they are or not. That's the so, beautiful thing about torture. You always well, find your man. Right, right. It's a, yeah, it's a great way to close cases. Uh, but what's needed is a way to produce different results using a single fair-seeming method. Now, for the record, I'm pretty sure you've already used up a minute. All so right, all right, need right. To- So how do we get to that method of differentiation? Right. Leeson uses an example he calls Frithigar and the Farmer. Uh, a well-known and respected farmer accuses Frithigar, who is an unpopular and friendless man, of stealing one of his cows. The farmer has no actual proof, and Frithigar denies the charge. So a judge orders that Frithigar undergo trial by ordeal. Um, uh, c- c- can I can I be the judge? You'd be my Just, guest. I order that you undergo the trial by ordeal. Oh, well done. Well done. Uh, okay, so having done that. Very judgely. Let's say Frithigar has complete faith, right? He believes, in other words, that God will sort the innocent from the guilty through this trial. If he's guilty, Frithigar has four options. He can choose to flee the town, first of all. Which would probably settle the question of guilt, if you ask me. Uh, Now, second, he could attempt to settle out of court, so to speak, by offering to pay a fine and return the cow. Uh, Third, he could confess his crime and seek a mediated settlement. Or fourth, he can undergo the trial suffer potentially crippling burns on his arm and hand, and then still have to pay a large fine for theft as well as having to return the cow or its equivalent worth. I don't like that. Yeah, no, we have to assume that in the vast majority of cases, a guilty Frithigar will avoid that last option. 
Yeah, because he believes that trial by ordeal works. Right, exactly. Hmm, okay. And you can reverse those choices if he's innocent and believes, right? He's very likely to choose the ordeal option since he also believes that that will exonerate him. Exactly, yes. Uh, Belief in the trial by ordeal creates what's called a separating equilibrium. In the majority of cases, the defendant's belief leads to a decision that declares his probable guilt or innocence to the law. In fact, there's some evidence that a defendant who refused to undergo ordeal was thought to have more or less admitted his guilt, which would then put him at a disadvantage in pursuing other resolutions. But what about the innocent man who undertakes the ordeal to clear his name? Because the iron in the pot is still going to burn him. Well, that's where the priest running the ordeal can step in with those delaying tactics we talked about to allow the iron or the water to cool. Mm. Or, in the worst scenario, can, quote-unquote, judge the burn to be healing cleanly. A lot of room for corruption there. there, Well, corruption is funny because Leeson makes this point I think is important. Uh, The priest helping the ordeal come to the conclusion he thinks it should reach may not be incompatible with a priest believing in divine judgment. Right? Priests were believed to have special interpretive powers regarding God's will. So mm-hmm. acting on what the, the priest believes to be right in judging an ordeal fits into their job description as intermediaries of God's work in the world. All right. But, John, you've only got a minute or so left here. You've only explained what happens if everyone involved believes that the ordeal will actually reveal God's will and judgment. What if the defendant is guilty but an atheist or even doesn't even believe in the ordeal specifically? <laughs> yeah, that's that's where it gets complicated. And the the opposite situation is a problem too, right? What about an innocent man who doesn't believe in the power of the ordeal, right? That man might act like a guilty man because he doesn't want a disfiguring burn that might, quote unquote, prove him guilty when he's not. Because he doesn't mm-hmm. believe that God will actually protect him. And as you say, the guilty man might take a chance on the ordeal if his other options all look as bad or worse. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a real problem. Well, now, this is where Leeson breaks out the complicated math. And while I can just about follow his argument uh, based on my, my limited background in mathematics, I'm not sure how to break it down in an audio format. Well, I mean, we could put a link to the article on the website, I guess. I mean, sure, but that's kind of an anticlimax at this point. It um, is. Go look at our website. We're not going right, to end this conversation right, now. Right. Forget this. <laughs> uh, no, let me try to explain. So the, the gist of it is there's two variables here. The first is a simple binary. Either Frithigar believes in the trial by ordeal's divinity or he doesn't. He might be unsure, but eventually he's going to have to make a decision on this one. Fair enough. Uh, your time is up, by the way. Hush. Now, the second variable is the percentage of guilty verdicts in ordeals overseen by this priest. Okay. Now, presumably that number, that percentage of people found guilty is known both to Frithigar and the community. Let's make that percentage X. Oh, boy. Yeah, this is math. (laughs) Hang on. I'm going to need a pen. Yeah, I would use a pencil. Uh, (laughs) X needs to be a number greater than 0%, but less than 100%, because there has to be some judgment seen to be involved in the ordeal. Sure, yeah. So if everyone's found guilty, it's not really a judgment. It's a sentence. Exactly, yes. Uh, And the priest knows this, and he has to keep that number high enough to keep guilty men guessing, but not so high that the innocent are afraid. And, of course, the priest is a member of the community and probably has some ideas about the likelihood of whether Frithigar is guilty or not. Oh, that's certainly true. Uh, We know that that's that's key. Right. Uh, So if Frithigar believes then X represents the number of actual guilty defendants uncovered by ordeal. Mm -hmm. 
If he doesn't believe, then X represents the percentage of cases that the priest declares guilty using whatever methods he uses. So if Frithigar is guilty, he'll refuse to undergo the ordeal if the probability of conviction coupled with the likelihood of divinity coupled with the priest's conviction rate appears less favorable than declining the ordeal. Mm -hmm. And that's true any time the conviction rate appears greater than the likelihood of being found guilty or the penalty for declining the ordeal. Meanwhile, an innocent man will still undergo the trial if the probability of exoneration, coupled with the likelihood of divinity, right, God's will, coupled with the priest's conviction rate, appears more favorable than declining the ordeal and being thought guilty, which is true any time the conviction rate appears lower than the likelihood of being found guilty or the penalty for declining the ordeal. So in both cases, the key variables are the percentage of guilty verdicts and the perception of the defendant that he's likely to get the outcome he wants. Hmm. So clearly, I wouldn't choose the wine in front of you. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. Uh, but you're trying to treat me to giving something away. It won't work. <laughs> no, but there is actually a link there, right? So Yeah, he, absolutely. It, it, it's all about human psychology and the study yes. of, of, of human behavior, right? And absolutely looking for tells right. and, and all of those things. That's exactly what a priest is. And I, I'm so fascinated by this when I study uh, medieval, um, mm-hmm. um, uh, what do you call it, handbooks of, of right. penance penitentials, and yeah. handbooks and, and, and confessionals and things like that. Um, the amount of psychological training that a yes. good parish priest has to have yep. in order to guide people in the right direction. Right. It's really fascinating. It gets very, very detailed. And what's so cool about this is that Leeson is trying to find a way to create a kind of logical mathematical formula to explain the psychological training of a priest and how that would be perceived by a potential defendant. Yeah. yeah. It's so cool. It's uh, so good. Now, yeah. I, I had the same, I had a similar yeah. kind of like a uh, epiphany moment or like, I just mm-hmm. like, I was just so fascinated as I was reading the works of, of Robert Grosetest and his discussions of how a priest <laughs> yes. should respond to uh, a person's confession. So if they say this kind of thing, you have to, you have to tease out and find out what was their motivation and, and really kind of help them understand what they were doing. It's, it's really fascinating stuff. Right. Yeah, no, I I think it's great. I mean, there's a lot more, by the way, but it's all pretty much like that. And that's about as simply as I can put it. Uh, I'll put together a handout or something with the actual mathematical formula on it to stick up on the website. Uh, I seriously doubt you will, but I like the I actually no, I actually already have produced it. I just need to to put it together to like put it on the website, which means I need you to put it on the website. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) But I actually have already created the Word document. Uh, Mm -hmm. It took me a while to kind of parse all this out. so uh, people who enjoy this kind of logic problem should read Leeson's essay, by the way, not just the handout, because it's fascinating yeah. stuff. That's cool. That's really neat. Um, so the upshot for anyone who's just now coming out of a math-induced fugue state uh, is that trial by ordeal might not be as random or <laughs> illogical as it appears, even though it appears to be extremely illogical. Right. Yes. I mean, That's not to say that it isn't still a bad idea for all kinds of burnt hand reasons. Uh, but it's probably not a lot, lot less likely to separate the innocent from the guilty than a lot of other things justice systems have tried over the centuries. And that's true. Yeah. And it does. It, I mean, it really helps that you have stories circulating about trials by ordeal that really work. Right. Yep. Yep. So literature plays a, an important function. Uh, but OK, where are we? What are what are we doing at this point? <laughs> <laughs> Someone was Mr. Guilty Pants. What, was, uh, what happened with him? Sound like Admiral James Stockdale. Uh, that's, a, that's a reference Who that am I? 
I don't exactly, Where are I think we? That's, that's a very much a generational marker right there. Yeah, it uh, is. Right. Now, this is why you don't use breadcrumbs, by the way. Uh, so we were about to hear Thorsten's story about the other time he saw a blistered hand like Bjarni's. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. His hand blistered in the ordeal, and now King Olaf claims it proves Bjarni's guilty of plotting against him. That's yes. where we were. Or, uh, but then Thorsten interrupts to tell his story. Yes. And the quick version is that Bjarni's mother, Ronhild, moved to a farm in Sweden after losing two husbands. And after Thorsten converted to Christianity, he went to visit her there and tried to convert her. And when she refused, he proposed a test, a sort of modified trial by ordeal. First, Ronhild's household god statues were lined up, and a hot iron was placed in each of their laps. Okay, so these are wooden statues, yes? Presumably, yes. And, of course, they all burst into flames, one after the other. Right, not a shocking result. Not really. Then the iron is heated again, and Thorsten takes it and walks nine feet with it. The hand is bandaged, and on the third night, Thorsten is visited in a dream by a shining man who says... You are too bold, but you will be rewarded for your goodness with the conversion of your mother. Your hand will be more beautiful than when it was whole, and then you will wear a glove on that hand and not praise my glory. And for your rashness, you will pay here in the world, in that you will suffer slander from the king, but you may show the hand if your life is at stake. Okay, so this would be the glove that he wears all the time, right? Can I just say that is a horribly written description of what happened? I know, I know. This this is, we should say that on the whole, this is not a fantastically written Thouter. That is a uh, terrible description of yes. something that's extremely important yes. to the story. It's, uh, it's also, um, yes, we should also add the detail uh, that at the beginning of the story, we said that he wears one glove all the time. And it's actually not mentioned in the Thouter until this point. It just seemed kind of uh, important to us to drop a yes. mention of it in before this. It's it's Chekhov's glove-covered maimed hand, right? You can't <laughs> you can't not mention it in the beginning if it's going to be this important later on. Yeah, I, I don't understand. Yeah, but the Thouter are kind of like that. They, they're often kind of quick. They feel quickly thrown together sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's what it is anyway. So after he finishes his story... Thorsten pulls the glove off his hand, revealing a raised circle of golden flesh with a red circle around it. Mm-hmm. And it looks pretty much like the raised blister on Bjarni's hand. Right. So Thorsten's story was that he was too bold, and so he was given a chastising mark on his hand, but got what he wanted. That's right. And so the bishop asks Bjarni what he might have on his conscience. And Bjarni admits that he heard Helgi planning the scheme to frame Thorarin, Thorsten, and him, Bjarni. But he hadn't said anything because Thorarin had warned him not to stir up any trouble. Yeah, that's that's a strange reason to get chastised. It is. But maybe the problem is that he failed to show good judgment, I guess. Or uh, that he was more loyal to Thorarin than the king? It doesn't sound I... right, but... Uh, he, he ignored a potential case of treason to avoid trouble. Maybe. It's a strange outcome. Uh, it is. But it does result in everyone believing Bjarni's story because, you know, mm-hmm. why wouldn't they at this point? Uh, so Helgi and his friend Thor are now put in chains and forced to confess their plot. Olaf wants to kill them, but he defers the judgment to Thorarin, who just finds them and banishes them from Norway. And that's it. We get a brief conclusion which just says that Thorarin was always with Olaf after this, 
and finally fell alongside him in battle. Well, we actually have corroborating evidence for this. Uh, the Heimskringla mentions Thorarin Nefelsen as a member of Olaf's court and has him working directly with the king. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there you go. That's our story of Thorarin Nefelsen. That's our pretty crappy story, and we are sticking to it. <laughs> oh, but how many times do we get a chance to break out a logical proof for something like the trial by ordeal? Oh, absolutely. This story has great elements. It's just so poorly executed, in my opinion. It, it is. There's there's some real problems with this one. Uh, yeah. We don't rank the uh, the Thouter, but if we were, we would say, this is one, it's, uh, it's probably for the best that you've heard this, but I don't know that I would recommend necessarily reading it. Yeah, I'm going to agree with that. Uh, all right. Uh, any runesack business before we shut it down for the night? Yes. This one's uh, from Elio Campatelli, who had a question for us about Kjalnasinga Saga. Kjalnasinga Saga. That feels like a million years ago now. It does. Yes. Uh, Kjalnasinga Saga. Long time ago. So Elio says, I've just finished your episodes on Kjalnasinga Saga, and there was something that got me curious. Bua abducts Olaf and takes her to a cave where he lives with his witch mother and has a daughter with her. Later, Fridir takes Bua to the bottom of a mountain where she lives with her troll father and has a son with him. Aren't both episodes kind of mirror images of each other, but with the genders reversed? The very brilliant and esteemed Andy mentioned not that the author there, used... I'm almost certain. What's that? I'm almost certain that is not what is written in there. I, it's probably in there. <laughs> I think it's in there. Yes, the the most brilliant and very esteemed Andy mentioned that the author used a lot of parallel constructions, which I thought was a brilliant point, and Andy's really awesome. So maybe this wow. is another example. Maybe if we were are meant to feel that all those dealings with Fridir are shaming for Bua, then maybe we are meant to feel the same about Olaf. What do you think, John? I think it's really – I mean the idea of it as a parallel is fascinating and yeah. it's it's to our shame that we didn't spot that when we were discussing the episode. So no, well it, done. It absolutely really works. Nice. Uh, yeah. I, it, and you're absolutely right. This is an author who is fascinated with parallel construction. So it makes absolute sense that it would work that way. Uh, mm-hmm. So excellent. I don't know about the question of it being shameful um, mainly because I'm not sure that – I mean certainly Bua – uh, behaves badly toward Olaf because he feels that she's shamed. Uh, but uh, I don't know that we're ever really invited to feel that he should feel shame about having been boy-toyed. Um, no, I don't, we see I, other I don't sagas, get that sense either. Yeah, we see other sagas where men are... We, uh, remember um, Hrut uh, being the, the friend of Queen Gunnild for a winter. Uh, yeah. the beginning of Njal's saga, right? There's no, we're never to- suggested that she's uh, uh, abusing him or that he should be feeling shameful about what happened. No. Well, um, and I, I'm thinking of even like an episode in the saga of Alan Bowbender, right? Where he 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 shacks up with this farmer's daughter for a while and she gets oh, pregnant. Oh, yes. And then he says, uh, if, it's a, if it's a boy, right. send him right. my way. If it's a female, well, enjoy. <laughs> well, but of course, that's uh, exactly what Bua does, remember, with uh, yeah. you know, his son Yokel. Uh, it's the same thing. And and again, uh, in, in neither place do I think that the saga is asking us to think ill of him. Right. Um for for even saying something so right. by by our own standards would is ludicrous. Right. Uh and now having said that, I think we did talk about at the time that you know Bua's behavior toward Olaf is appalling throughout and 
one of the reasons that we thought he was kind of an ass and didn't really care for him. Yeah. Uh, but no, I think that's that's a really interesting point. I like that a lot. That is that is almost certainly an example of parallel construction that we missed. So well done. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, uh, John, I think uh, we've done enough damage for one episode, <laughs> especially to the people who didn't sign up for you trying to explain logic problems orally. I mean, it's an oral medium, Andy. I, I really don't know how else I could have done it. <laughs> But you it were took so, a lot of gas to drive to everybody's house and show it to them individually. Yeah, you got and you got to bring your whiteboard and the markers dry right, out. Right. How yeah. else could I have done it? Yeah. But you were so preoccupied with whether or not you could that you didn't stop to think of whether or not you should, though, John, you know? <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Ian Malcolm. Uh, <laughs> You're welcome. Anything else you want to say to the nice people? Well, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> but as always, we uh, we do want to hear from you. So let us know what you're thinking and uh, share your questions with us. We've got two more of these to do before we jump into our next saga. So uh, yes. please reach out to us. We are on Facebook and Instagram at Saga Thing Podcast. We're on Twitter at Saga Thing Pod. Or you can hit us up at email at Saga Thing Podcast at gmail.com. Right. Or visit us on our website, uh, Saga Thing Podcast.wordpress.com and uh, send us a message that way. Or you can calculate the likelihood of us reading a postcard mailed to a random address, incorporate the known variables, create a proof of the required logic problem, write it on the postcard, and take your chances. Oof. So <laughs> I don't even know how to how to respond to that. But uh, So we're going to get back to it next week with the next of our month-long series of Thauter readings with uh, the tale of Thidrandi and Thorholz. Mm. Oh, fun. Give it a read in the meantime, and we'll talk to you then. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. <laughs>